Hello and welcome to this Blackwell Online podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Raymond Tallis, named by Prospect magazine as one of Britain's top 100 public intellectuals. Ray was, until 2006, Professor of Geriatric Medicine at Manchester University, a role which he managed to combine with those of poet, novelist and philosopher, demonstrating that sometimes the much-abused term polymath is not misapplied. His recent books have taken readers on a fantastical journey around the human head and explored the physiological and ethical dimensions of hunger. This latest book shows the same interest in our corporeal existence and its wider implications for what it means to be human. Michelangelo's finger takes a simple act of pointing and reveals that it is not such a simple activity after all, but one which in fact marks our essential humanity, our ability to see the world from another's viewpoint and even gesture to the beyond, the transcendent. The book makes clear that Ray has been thinking about pointing for many years, so I asked him whether he felt that his previous work in consciousness had been a necessary precursor to returning to pointing and appreciating its full significance. That's absolutely right. I mean, I originally wrote so-called, or what I called it, Studies in Pointish in 1973, which was driven by the thought that pointing, as it were, was a proto or primitive language. What I hadn't quite realized is in order to have any kind of language, you have to have a rather special sort of consciousness. And really, it was the exploration of what is distinctive about human as opposed to animal consciousness. In the three volumes of the trilogy I published, in the early part of the last decade now, in between 2003 and 2005, mm. that made me realize why pointing was so interesting and really what it was pointing to, so to speak. Mm. Yes, the, the, the attraction of puns is, is almost unavoidable, isn't it, in this subject? I'm very sorry about that, <laughs> and I will try and ration myself severely. Now, you say, rather amusingly, you're not some park bench crank banging on about at some fixation. Pointing is actually a subject which has attracted attention from, a, from people in a variety of disciplines. Quite correct. I mean, linguists and anthropologists, sociologists, and so on, all of whom have looked at pointing, because they've all been driven by the intuition it's more than just another gesture. I mean, there's plenty of evidence for that if you just look at uh, infant development. You know, it's, it's the first gesture that really develops in an infant just before language at about 10 months. And by the time you reach a year, it accounts for something like 60% of all gestures. And it interacts so importantly with language as well. And so in that sense, it, it, it's not any old gesture, and therefore it has attracted a lot of interest from people who aren't park bench cranks, but serious academics. And when you begin to anatomize it, it turns out to be quite a complex gesture, because I think most of us think of it as something very simple, instinctive. But in fact, when you begin to pick it apart, quite complicated things are going on in the, in the human mind. They are. And I think it was something that's in mistake to think of pointing as part of the natural language of a human species, one that was somehow transparent and self-evident. I mean, the rules for pointing when you tease them out for Martians, as it were, mm. do turn out to be quite complex. I mean, one of the things you do is to extend, obviously, your arm and your hand and your little finger, and you invite the person to whom you're, on whose, for whose benefit you're pointing something out to extend the long axis of that upper limb. But there's more to it than that. I mean, if you invite your consumer, as it were, mm. to actually adopt your position and look along that long axis which you have indicated through your upper limb. So it demands both of the consumer a sense of your point of view, which is quite different from theirs. But you also have an understanding that their point of view is different from yours. 
that you can see something or know something that they don't know. And this sense of other people's points of view and other people's minds and what's missing in other people's minds is a very sophisticated sense, which is unique to humans. This theory of mind which you're talking about, you're quite clear in your book that this is not something which is shared by even the higher apes, let alone dogs, for example. Indeed. Um, I mean, uh, certainly not dogs. And for a long time, there was, it has been thought that chimpanzees, for example, have a theory of mind as regards other chimpanzees. They uh, feel that other chimpanzees have different viewpoints. But some beautiful, detailed, careful work carried out by people like Daniel Povanelli has shown really that chimpanzees don't have a sense of what another person is looking at or what they may or may not be able to see, and even less do they have a sense of, on the basis of that, of what someone else might be pointing, pointing at. Mm. No chimps point in the wild. I mean, 40 years of Jane Goodall's observations showed that chimps didn't point in the wild. Mm. Some of them seem to point in captivity, but when you look at it very closely, it doesn't really seem to have the referential function that human pointing does. And what's more, they can't understand other people's pointing or their keepers pointing, shall I say. They misinterpret it. If I point to an object, they will always interpret the pointee as being that which is nearest to the tip of my finger, irrespective of the direction to which I'm actually pointing. So they don't produce pointing, they don't assume it, sorry, they don't consume it, I should say. And that fits with the fact that they are profoundly different from us, which is one of the messages of my book, really. Now, you dismissed the notion that dogs could point, but I'm sure listeners, some listeners may be saying, but what about pointers? Surely they, they are animals which point. Yeah, so they ought to try the experiment of inviting an animal to look at the direction you're pointing at. If you take a dog for a walk and you throw a stick and it doesn't see where, where you've thrown it and you point to it, you'll find it very irritating because you'll have to get the stick yourself. The dog doesn't actually understand what you're pointing at. Of course, there are dogs called pointers, but their pointing is not the same as ours for two reasons. One is their whole body is involved. They're not deliberately using a part of their body as a signal. And secondly, they're what you might call one-trick ponies. They only point, in inverted commas, to one kind of thing, namely game. They don't sort of point to interesting objects around them and that sort of thing. So their apparent pointing is really nothing like the referential pointing of human beings. Now, you mentioned language acquisition earlier, Ray, and I wondered how far do you think you can argue for the role of pointing as being a sort of intermediary between the physical reference in the world and human language? Well, I think one thing is true. Both pointing and human language require a bit of metaphysical kit, as it were, which, again, no other animals have, which is to have the sense that they themselves are embodied subjects who can refer to things that are either present or indeed either absent to themselves or to others. Mm. So that's sort of part of a kit that's, as it were, common to pointing and to language. However, as I discovered in my studies in pointage of 1973, <laughs> you really can't see pointing as a full-blown language. It doesn't, first of all, uh, deal with things that are abstract or absent, and pointings don't add up together to sentences. There isn't a grammar of pointing. But of course, pointing can be useful helping to teach children particular words, and that's why we may get the impression sometimes that pointing is a bigger bridge to language than we think it is. It certainly contributes to our acquisition of particular nouns and so on, but it doesn't really take us all the way to language. 
I mean, imagine trying to, uh, to illustrate the meaning of the or, yes. or by mm. use of pointing. So pointing and language require something of the same kit, but pointing only contributes a small amount to our understanding language, and in particular, understanding words that don't correspond to concrete material objects. Now, so far we've talked about the sort of helpful, benign uses of pointing, but there's a, there's a chapter in the book which is, is actually very funny, where you talk about the way that pointing can be used to assert the self, an expression of arrogance or, or of someone who's very opinionated. And clearly you've, in your career you've come across a few people who've, who've, known, who've known how to exercise their index fingers as a sort of means of authority. Yes, I'm sorry if my allergy to certain kinds of pointing shows up in a certain amount of passion. Uh, I don't like people who wag their finger. I don't like people who say, mark my words, I'll say this only once, listen up. I don't like people who point to their own lips to tell you to be quiet. I don't like people who just raise their finger to tell you, please listen to me. Pointing is really quite a, an aggressive, sometimes an, an aggressive form of non-linguistic communication. When you're pointed at, you can sometimes feel you're actually being skewered and I think um, that can be extremely uncomfortable. And then when people are sort of prodding the air with their fingers, it's like a sort of digital glare. Uh, and sometimes one-fingered pointing can be more upsetting and discomposing than a curled fist. The example which I like best in your book of that was a committee chair who used to speak with her eyes closed and a, an index finger raised. That seems like an almost impermeable armour, really. That was unbearable, um, particularly she didn't seem to be on top of her brief, and we all had to sit around while she spoke at great length, as you were, holding the conch, um, <laughs> and as you say, with her eyes closed, which indicated that she was concentrating very hard on her thoughts, and not at all on the people around her. Now, I think a lot of people will be very persuaded by what you say about the, the role of pointing in, in, in human culture, but you talk about transcendence, which I suppose is, is the, sort of the sort of furthest claim that you make for the importance of pointing. So can you say a bit about how, how the index finger connects to this, this idea of, of transcendence and, and something beyond? Yes. I mean, for me, transcendence is something every day. It isn't about a deity in the sky or mystical experiences. It's about the extraordinary fact that we're aware of a world that goes beyond our experiences. We're aware of it immediately in the sense of an object that I look at, and I know there's more to the object than what I'm experiencing of it. Mm. But beyond that, there is a sense of the world that goes beyond what, I, what I'm currently experiencing entirely. And I have a thought, an experiment, which I mentioned that you're on the ground and I'm up in a tree and I'm pointing to something. Mm. And you have a sense that there's something out there that is very important, that really does exist, but in which is not the moment related to my body. And this sort of opens up a space of possibility. And the space of possibility, of generality, that is really the what I would regard as the everyday transcendence that is built into human consciousness and again is not present in animal consciousness. And you link up your own boyhood and that of Sir Walter Raleigh at the end of the book in, in quite an imaginative way. Can you say a little bit about what was, um, what was going through your mind there? Well, it was just I remember when I was in the first form uh, there was Millet's famous boyhood of Raleigh uh, as a picture on the wall and it showed a stalwart Genoese sailor pointing to the horizon and there's Raleigh with his eyes hanging on stalks, being fed the kind of stories that then drove him to uh, travel over the earth in search, rather largely, of piratically seized goods. And John Maynard Keynes pointed out that the kind of um, booty that was brought back to the United Kingdom, and indeed to Europe, created 
a um, surplus in the treasuries of the nations involved. And that surplus, in a way, created a leisure class who in turn were responsible for inquiry and science, ultimately the Industrial Revolution, which in turn created sufficient free disposable income to make it possible for us to have free schooling and so on, including the schools that I went to. Mm. And on the wall of that school was indeed Millet's Boyhood of Rally. Mm. So in a sense, you could think of the Genoese sailors pointing over the horizon eventually to me as a mm. schoolboy, lucky enough to be educated as previous generations hadn't. That's a lot of responsibility for one index finger to bear, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yes, guys. Raymond Tallis. Michelangelo's finger is out now in hardback. Full details on ordering can be found on the Blackwell website at blackwell.co.uk.